0: Welcome to Kramer Says. Kramer Says. Be part of the show at KramerSays.com. Interact on Twitter at KramerSEZ. Now, Kramer Says. Welcome to the show. My name is Kramer. This is the Kramer Says Podcast. It is Tuesday, December 20th. My special guest today is Sergio De La Pena. Sergio was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Western Hemisphere Affairs at the Department of Defense uh, under, under Trump. Um, the Trump administration. Sergio, uh, the reason we wanted to talk today is that there's a lot going on. All eyes are on Ukraine. No eyes are on South America, and that was really your specialty where you spent the majority of your time and focus. Tell us what we should know about South America, what's happening down there, and why it should be of a concern to to the United States and its citizens.
1: Well, thank you for this opportunity, Tim. Uh, Our hemisphere has the greatest proximity to the United States so that should be a concern right out of the gates you need to be concerned about where you could have a potential threat closest to the u.s and we live in an interconnected world where just because there's a conflict in ukraine and it involves the russians uh, it doesn't mean that there's not the same involvement well maybe not to the extent of of obviously not a conflict but as far as the presence of russians chinese iranians north koreans all of those people are present in our hemisphere. And so we need to take a hard look at what's happening. And in particular, let's just go over the election cycle that's occurred over the last two or three years. You have seen uh, Bolivia turn completely socialist. You've seen Chile turn socialist. You've seen Peru, Colombia, Honduras, and Brazil all move in that direction and then you've got situations like in in el salvador where you have an authoritarian that's running the government but he has a pretty face and has made himself visible to people such as tucker carlson who argue that he has reduced crime but if you look into his background there's some questions there that you need to really take a hard look at so during the trump administration we had the best alignment in our hemisphere all of those countries I just mentioned were on the other side. They were right. either right or center right governments. And, and one of the things that you find fascinating about this, just on, on the right center right thing, everything that moves to the right is extreme right. That's just the way the media portrays it. So if you believe in life, you're automatically labeled as or if you if you're pro-life, you're automatically labeled as extreme right. So this exactly. is just the way the game is played so with all of these countries moving in that direction you have to ask yourself how did that happen so let's, let's just go i'm going to give you a quick history lesson i'm going to go through the initial parts really fast so back in 1919 when the soviet union became the soviet union they created the communist international and that was around until 1943 the communist international was basically workers of the world unite they had a really snappy tune Called the International that you can find on on YouTube, and it's it's a it's an inspiring song that gets everybody all fired up about how we are going to become one united world. You know the workers of the world are right. going to be are right. the ones that rule on, yeah. so, yeah, <laughs> but, but it's a, but it you know it's a pretty snappy song if you listen to it, um, and it says a lot of a lot of stuff. But in 1943 the communist international stopped being a thing why because stalin was up to his eyeballs with germans trying to overthrow the soviet union so he needed allied help and he didn't think it was a good idea to be poking his allies in the eye by trying to get the whole world to unite around the soviet union and become one you know socialist communist country uh worldwide so it it was it was about world domination at least that was their goal and so world war 2 put a put a stop to that or at least they it said we're not going to be involved in this anymore so we fought world war world war 2 we won world war 2 right afterwards the cold war began and the cold war was the soviet union wanting to continue that hegemony except they thought well let's let's see what we can do with a force of arms eventually because they or the threat of the force of arms right by that they were able to take over this the uh, the um, countries that were around russia which created the warsaw pact so the warsaw right. pact became a buffer zone and and they were able to through, through intimidation control that whole chunk of real estate in in the rest of the world they decided well you know we don't do well if we fight wars we're not sure that that's the way to go because when they went up against the united states in europe and uh we had the berlin embargo and all that it basically they figured out if we go to war we're going to start nuking each other that's not a good idea so we have to right. come up with a different game plan so that game plan is let's destabilize governments all over the world and and then they began the the guerrilla wars that that spread to latin america they spread to Africa and they were constantly stirring up the pot. So it was a communist international by another name. It went that was through the force of the gun, the force of the bullet. Right. And they found out that even even in insurgencies, they weren't very good at it. They kept losing insurgencies all over the place. But it wasn't for lack of trying because they found that in when Cuba became a communist state in our hemisphere, they could funnel something to the tune of about $10 billion a year, and they could get these movements equipped through cuba so they would send trainers they would send money they would send resources and they would go against the governments uh, throughout latin america the response was uh we had a lot of military governments because the only way that you could confront these situations and emergencies was through military action so uh, uh, you created uh, right. a military state Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of, we had more military governments in in the hemisphere and actually not just our hemisphere, also the other side, but uh, eventually they were able to overthrow the guerrilla movements. As a matter of fact, Che Guevara, famous guy, t-shirt guy uh, who was really, he was an Argentine doctor who was a a rabble rouser, went went to Africa, stirred the pot, was fairly successful. Uh, He came, he decided to get his, get involved in a hands-on sort of way, so in 1966, 67, he went down to Bolivia. And uh, he he came in like a Jim Dandy to the rescue uh, with a a small team of insurgents that he felt he was going to create. um, He called it two, three mini-Vietnam's in our hemisphere. Um, In October of 1967, uh, the Bolivian Rangers took care of Mr. Guevara in short order, and he kind of fell off the radar scope. But that did not stop other insurgent movements being equipped and trained by Cuba through the Soviet Union throughout the hemisphere. And as you saw, we went into the 80s, the the wars in Central America. Uh, In in Latin America, you had other insurgencies going on with the assistance of of the Soviet Union. In 1989, when the wall collapsed, they thought, hmm, our influence worldwide is kind of going by the wayside. So. But, but, they're, <laughs> but they're very resourceful. Now I'm getting to to the problem with our elections or the results of the elections in in, uh, in our hemisphere.
0: Well, in uh, let me step back. I, sure. Khrushchev, Khrushchev had made the statement, not only to the U.S., but we'd have to assume that if they're using this tactic in the U.S., that they're going to use it across the rest of the planet, is that we will destroy sure. you from the inside. Is that the process right. that's been used here?
1: Well... Initially, they, no, when Khrushchev was talking about that, he was talking about, we're going to destroy you through insurgencies. He wasn't, so so one of the things that Soviet doctrine teaches is you, what you can't win by the bullet, you went by the ballot box. That in yeah. the Khrushchev era, he was still going by the bullet and not, not mm-hmm. having a lot of success. So let me give you right. an example. This, this brings up a, a let me, I'm, I'm kind of bouncing around. So let's just take let's take the the Khrushchev example for a second. So in the early 60s or the mid 60s, uh, they decided, you know what, we're going to start a guerrilla war in Venezuela, and the Venezuelan army took care of it in short order. They 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 took out uh, the guerrilla movements, and they decided one way to deal with these guerrillas is let's just let them participate in the electoral process so they they started at least embedding themselves into the political process they didn't win elections but they were there and so right. they they said okay well fidel is probably as you know he's assessing everything and he's thinking eh, didn't do very well in venezuela let's try let's let's go and try chile so allende gets elected there was there was some dynamics that made it a difficult election because it split up into three thirds. So there was the the left, there was the right, and there was the center. And the center decided, um, we're gonna go, we're kind of, we'll just see who wins. And because there were enough defections that went over to the left, uh, the center was kind of out of it. Then when Allende became president,
0: I'm he sorry. I'm going to interrupt So you're saying that the, the centrist decided not to participate at all and that allowed well, the leftists to win or they, they participated they at a very low rate.
1: No, they what they did is they did not support the right so that between the oh, okay. right and the center, they could have won the election. Right. So instead, okay. they, they kind of just let it go. And there were enough defections to the left where Allende won with a mandate of less than I think. I'm trying to remember the numbers. It was it was in the in the low 30s. So Allende wins and immediately Fidel shows up and he hangs around Chile for a month. Now think about in what period of history do you see the head of state from another country come to your country as you're establishing your government? But there was Fidel coaching Allende on how to set things up, meaning how do you set up these snitch committees that they have all over Cuba? How do you start taking advantage of putting your impromptu into all of the institutions of government, how you create your own uh, people's army, all of that kind of stuff. And so while he was doing all of that, the economy tanked. And then, you know, the United States was involved because they nationalized a lot of American companies. And so so Pinochet, who was the commander of the army said, you know what, Uh, when the opposition is creating this shadow army, that's going to compete with the 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 army of chile and we're not going to play that game so he decided we're going to coup and so the, again the insurgency failed now you had a military dictatorship and pinochet stayed in office he says i'm going to be around for 15 years <laughs> so i so the country gets stabilized and and we root right. out corruption and we establish the roots of democratic market based uh society and then in in 15 years we'll ch- we'll check it out 14 and a half year later he steps down he runs for office he loses he steps down with a proviso that he was still the commander of the army because what happens is when you have military dictators step down they wait two year old and then they come after you which is exactly what they did with pinochet but anyway yeah. so so the lesson learned from that to fidel was um didn't work again i think we need to put a little bit more a time gap from the time that we win elections you know because they they were there helping out with the elections and making sure that again they got elected so they decided let's try something else so in 1994 uh chavez goes and gives a speech at the university of Havana in december and he lays out what he's going to do and he carries out exactly what he was going to do except this time he gets elected legally. I was an observer at both his primary and his runoff elections. And and they and were And you said before like those elections
0: were free and fair, right? You've they said before fair fair. that those yeah. were free and fair and no and problems. Those
1: were. Those were. There were no problems. But I also knew that Chavez had some had a background of naughtiness, as I had <laughs> just described. He was he was in Cuba talking about how he's gonna take over the government. <laughs> so, 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 as soon as as soon as he's elected, uh, I got the first whiff that he probably wasn't going to play ball with the United States because I left Venezuela in July of '99. He had gotten elected the year before, and he took office in '99, like I think the uh, inaugural was, like in February. So we, I was monitoring the situation in in, in Venezuela you know, and he seems to be saying all the right things, then all of a sudden, in December of that year, they had these massive landslides and everything went to hell in a yep. handbasket and yep. and about 50,000 50, Venezuelans died. So Southcom decided we're gonna go down there and help them because you know, it, he's, he's a little questionable, but these are Venezuelan people, these are still our partners, let's see what we can do to help. And so uh, they deployed a battalion of, of, of military engineers, I think it was the Marines, it might have been Army, I, I don't remember exactly, but one of the two, they, they were on their way down to Venezuela and then Chavez says, uh, you're, we're happy to take your equipment but you're not going to put your people on the ground. Well, wow. we decided no. We don't. We don't just give yeah, a yeah. <laughs> worth of engineer. Got, equipment. You know, our military isn't just
0: a rental center. You don't just get our gear and we leave. Oh no, it wasn't a <laughs>
1: rental center. They wanted to keep it. No, they. Well, that's so, what i anyway, saying. Yeah. So we we decided eh, no. We don't do that. So we turned around and and, uh, and and left it up to them to to sort it out. We still provided some assistance through the Red Cross and all these other relief agencies, but not the military. And that's when I it the light bulb came on to me and says, oh, this guy's going to turn into a knucklehead. And so shortly thereafter, he gets elected, and the first thing he does is he puts a plebiscite out to change the constitution. The plebiscite passes by about 70%. And then after that, he changes the constitution, and there's election upon election upon election upon election. The subsequent elections didn't have observers. The subsequent elections were run by um, people that Chavez picked or people that Chavez could influence, and guess what? Things went his way. And this time instead of you know trying to make the changes quick and dramatic they took their time chavez wins a re-election price of oil goes up he's able to give away a lot of money everything's hunky-dory everybody loves him he is the hero uh, the left throughout the world and even those in yeah. the center are saying what a wonderful dude this guy is and so chavez, yeah, well, they, well, what, what uh, i
0: remember what i remember at the time is that people were saying, and especially mainstream media pundits, were saying that mm-hmm. Venezuela is finally doing socialism right. That was right. the big thing. We finally got it right. We, we, we nailed Correct. it. What happened next? Correct.
1: Well, I kept talking to some of my friends that were in Venezuela and they said, they're expropriating land. They're just yeah. taking it away from us and they're giving it to these people that have never worked in the fields and they're that the lands are going fallow and they don't know what they're doing uh, or, they would complain to Chavez, uh, and they would say, "Hey, I don't have a house." And then Chavez would look at a building. You see, expropriate that. Expropias. That means that that building now, all of a sudden, uh, becomes his. Belongs property. to the people. So he right. He, no, well, it belonged to him first, and then. He and was, him? Oh, well, he and that's what they always say, too.
0: though, right? They always make the claim that it's for the people, <laughs> and then one person gets it. <laughs> right. So
1: then, so then, what happens is Chavez. Um, is starting to have some problems he's starting to have some hiccups his the price of oil drops he's taking as much as he can uh the productive sector is drying out venezuelans that could get out do get out and so a lot of the the small and medium business owners said "Eh, it's time for me to leave so all you were left with were the people that helped Chavez get in office which were the the big corporations who had a relationship with the government does it sound familiar you know let's let's talk about big (laughs) tech let's talk about uh these these companies that have big money that that stay open during COVID and everybody else shuts down you know so there's there's that cooperation between the government and the big companies in the meantime the little companies are getting hammered in the case of chavez it was the same thing those people that were the small business owner and the medium business owners are having the properties expropriated and uh, Chavez has given it away to people that don't know how to take care of it. Next thing you know, the, the place just continues to slide downhill. Then there was a strike at PDVSA, the national uh, oil company. And um, he breaks the strike. And he takes a company that in, uh, I think it was around 97, eight, it was considered the fifth, one of the fifth, largest and most well-run companies in the world to one where they doubled the number of employees and they halved the level of production and later it continued to drop and and now you see become a shell of its former self so what i'm getting at is chavez was able to achieve that socialist dream remember there the 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 communists go by the bullet or the ballot box in this case they finally refined it castro Had helped Chavez out, and uh, he said, "Don't go so fast. Go a little slower. Get yourself elected, and then you can control things." And sure enough, that's exactly what he—that's what he did, and that's how Venezuela became the basket case that it is today. I met Mr. Mr. Fidel Castro once during his inauguration. Wow! Really? (laughs) What I mean mean by met was I was going into Miraflores, which is their uh, quasi-capital, White House. It's their seat of government. Fidel was coming out. I was going in, and uh, he looked at. He didn't. He did. He looked straight ahead. He saw my name tag, and then just kind of looked away. And then I walked past him and didn't say hello. I didn't say anything. That was it. <laughs> at the time, I thought this guy's going to die. This guy just looks looks terrible. He was wearing a. He was wearing a shirt, and you could see there was a gigantic gap between his shirt. Oh and yeah. Like yeah. I, I thought the guy's got cancer. He's going to die. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I bet my brother. I bet my brother that hey, if he's going to die, I uh, bet you a case of beer. He dies within a year. <laughs> so, so he said you're on. Well, he and what was the bet? Was it was it like
0: in uh, trading places where it's a dollar? The two brothers, you no, know, they they bet no. big bets over just one dollar, right? It was a case <clears> of beer. <throat> I lost it. The there you go. So well, so so let. It, how does that? So so what we're seeing now is, and it's it's very it's very interesting the way that you break this down and talk about it is that it seems that. Those who are looking for power, especially dictatorial power, have learned from what Russia has done over the last 70, 80 years, um, and they've refined it. And now we're seeing it being spread across the planet um, without getting into the weeds about what happened in 2020 here in the U.S. There's still some contention about voting and these voting machines, and now we're starting to see that problem first raise its head in a big way in South America, in particular Brazil. So what's happening there now?
1: So let me, let me finish the story of about voting against commies because it kind of ties together, okay. and then I'll get to your point. Okay. So, so Fidel lives, and then uh, later, uh, a few years later, Mr. Chavez gets cancer, and he gets, he goes to the church he attended as a child in Barinas, <clears throat> and he goes on the altar And he's begging God for life and he's very, he's very emotional and I'm thinking he's a clown. He's, he's putting on a show. This is all an act. A friend of mine says, no, I hear it from, from good sources that the guy's got cancer and he's going to die. And I thought he was kidding. And I, again, I bet another case of beer again, (laughs) that he would live more than a year. Oh, wow. He died. So then he died within a few months. So my lesson learned was don't bet against commies living and dying. I'm terrible at guessing that part. of it. But,
0: <laughs> and you're an expert. You should but, know more than anybody else.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, about their health, the health is a different issue. Okay. So I wasn't as good about guessing that. Okay. So let's get back to what's happening now. So, again, back in 1990, when the wall collapsed, when, when the Soviet Union was no, no longer able to provide that $10 billion subsidy to Cuba, which almost sunk them. This is like in the right. ninety, ninety one time frame. I remember that. And Cuba yeah. was a basket case. I mean, they were about ready yeah. to sink. And well, so, that's why all the
0: boat people make that made the effort to to cross that ninety miles of ocean into Florida because they were starving in the streets.
1: Correct. So that place was a basket case. It was a mess. Right. And so the communist international or the people that are affiliated with communist ideology decided, you know what, we need to come up with a different game plan. So Fidel Castro and Ignacio Lula de Silva, name sound familiar? Yeah. Now president of Brazil, in yep. 1990 created yep. the Sao Paulo Forum. The Sao Paulo Forum is a grouping of 123 political parties in 27 countries, of which 16 meet annually. When the forum first started, they had every guerrilla group in the in in the hemisphere included in their website. And then, and if you look at it now, you can go on there, it's called sao It'll show as its membership every communist party in the hemisphere, but it won't talk about the guerrilla
0: groups. They have
1: that's not cool. So they have been. Why isn't it cool? Because
0: is is that their Antifa? Is that their they don't want to bring them into the fold now? Or why aren't they including them any longer? Have they lost use for them?
1: well because even even some of the hardcore lefties don't like people with guns shooting people up and 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 doing some of the horrible things that they do so it's not it's not kosher to have those people actually listed okay. as one of your members so now it's the communist party so what in, in any communist movement any socialist movement you have the political wing and the arm wing and so the political wing gets legitimacy establishes itself as a as a a legitimate party that may be persecuted by their definition and then you have the arm wing that's out there stirring up the pot so they've taken those guys any arm wing is off of there so what you have is a political wing and then you have got every leftist party in the hemisphere pretty much included in 123 parties so you can look it up on their website you can see what their goals are you can see what their pillars are and it's to it's about equity, it's about inclusion, they're against xenophobia. All this stuff that you now hear about the left, they continue to evolve, but it's interesting to go on their website and see what they represent. So they created this in 1990, and the idea was to influence political parties and to have them be active in turning over governments in all of the countries in Latin America so that you would have a conglomeration of of like-minded, ideologically aligned uh, leftist parties and leftist governments in this hemisphere. So let's go one step further. So that's the photo. And by the way, they've, right. they've been very successful, as I just described. Yep. Yep. And so you then look at the Grupo de Puebla, the Puebla group. That is, a, that, that group was created, In 2019, in Mexico, and uh, its founding members were eight former presidents. Now it's up to something like 14. Now you have to take into account that one of them died, so maybe you know, the 14 in name, there's one that's dead, so there's 13. And this is sort of the executive committee that is aligned with the photo. It doesn't really tell the photo what to do, but it coordinates with the photo. But Lula is a member of the Puebla group as well, so go figure. Right. So these these organizations, in their charters, in their in their propaganda and in their websites, talk about the overthrow of capitalist governments. So they're they're pretty open about
0: it. Well, that, and so, yeah, and that, that's what I keep saying is that if you have a plan, it's e it's easier to achieve something if you have a plan and you state it to other people that have the same ideology. Now you've Correct. got a plan. That That's what we Correct. see here is that there's a defined plan to, to take down capitalism. I don't see one to defend it yet. Go ahead.
1: Correct. No, no, and, and that's their stated goal is to defeat capitalism. And yep. if you look at the pillars that they present, they're not unlike what you see out of Black Lives Matter and not in, in any of these hardcore lefty organizations, it's all there. And so this is the kind of influence that the Foro de Sao Paulo has had in this, they call it the pink tide. The problem with the pink tide is that things don't go well when they actually take charge because the very first thing they want to do is, how do we change the constitution? They did it in Cuba. Yeah. They were kind of the precursors. We did it, they did it in Nicaragua. They did it in Venezuela. They did it in Bolivia. And what did they try to do in Chile as soon as Boric got elected? Actually, before he got elected, because they yeah. wanted to, they, they went riding in the streets, they stirred up the pot. You had a Black Lives Matter sort of movement get the big crowds into the street, and you had a t- <laughs> like people that were in there tearing things up. So, the the two of them working collaboratively were able to put enough pressure on the government. Says, okay, this is the previous government. Let's go along with a constituent assembly to rewrite the constitution. Let's draft one up and see what. What it says, and let's let the people vote on the constitution. Boric comes in, he says, Great, I got my, I got half of the job done. Now let's take a look at the draft. And people said, "Uh, No. Every single zone, meaning state, in Chile said, "Uh, We're not doing that. They all rejected it unanimously. All, I think it's 10 or 11 zones in Chile. Every one of them said, No, we're not playing that game. And so now Boric has kind of had to go a little bit more moderate, but he's still trying to figure out how can I, you know, regain my posture so that I can get to the point where I can redraft the Constitution. So that was Chile. Let's go to Peru. What have the people of Peru that are out there raising hell in the streets are, what are they saying? Let's let's draft a constitution. And by the way, yep. let me back up a little bit. So. When President Castillo was um, booted out of office by the Congress and arrested, he was, he had put out a decree. I listened to a 10-minute little spiel that he gave where he basically said, I'm going to put, I'm I'm, I'm declaring emergency powers. I'm asking the military to join me. I'm asking the police to join me uh, because what the Congress is doing to me is illegal and oh, by the way, we're going to start putting a curfew from 10 to 4 and, (laughs) We're going to put in a new Congress that I will pick myself and they're going to draft up a new constitution. And that's when the current current Congress said, "Uh, "Nah, not so fast. You're under arrest. (laughs) You're not going anywhere. The driver that was taking him over to the Mexican embassy to see if uh, he could uh, get uh, get at least some sort of refuge said, There's too many people at the Mexican embassy. We're going to turn around and we're going to drop you off over at the prosecutor's office, and then you deal with it. And so that's (laughs) when he was put put under arrest. And then, and then Mexican President uh, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, lovingly known as AMLO, said, uh, "I support Peru." And so, so does so does Colombia, so does uh, so do some of the other leftist governments. Interestingly. Sheila said, "No, you can't do what you're doing." So anyway, so that's just to give you a little background of what's going on in, in Peru. In the meantime, uh, they call for strikes, and they get they call for the people to go to the streets, which they've done. So they mobilize all of these people that sided with President Castillo, and it's mostly the Andean people that are doing a lot of the rioting. and they in the in the towns in the Andes. There's a lot of there's a lot of disorder. If you get down to Lima, it's less so, but they did try to take over the airport and the military right, said, I, mm, no, no, we're not gonna let you do that. But we've got I a lot of a, Americans that are now stranded.
0: right. Well, I have a buddy that, that had to get out of Peru. And so that's how I knew that the streets were all blocked because he sent all this video of every everywhere that he went, uh, militia groups or groups of armed men. Would stop their bus or stop the motorcycle he was on and charge them a fee to get through that area, and when they found out that he had U.S. dollars on him, right? He goes, he goes. I never felt more afraid for my life when than when they found out that I had U.S. dollars on me and I wasn't using yeah. the Peruvian currency.
1: So you're describing what's going on very aptly. So yeah. in Peru, what you have is a total breakdown in order. Uh, the Fact that you have, By the way, let me, let me, okay, um,
0: before what time period have we seen this happen in Peru? Because this is the first time hearing about Peru. I know Brazil's going on and I know about Venezuela and Nicaragua, but Peru has fairly been fairly stable, right? Am I wrong?
1: Well, let's, let's, let's define stable. So from 1989 to 1991, um, I was in and out of Peru about five or six times. At that time, it wasn't very stable. I mean, they, they were, oh, Okay. Uh, if, if if you take an average of the times I was in in Peru, Half of the times you were you were there without electricity because they were they are blowing up power lines and and uh, transformers transformers and transforming stations. All of these things were being done to the infrastructure so that you didn't have electricity half the time that I was there. So the Sendero Luminoso was running amok. Uh, the Movimiento Revolucionario Tupac Amaru, the MRTA, they were doing the same sort of thing and. Um, the place was a mess and then Fujimori came in and he straightened it out so this he by about 1991 uh, you started to see a significant change because Fujimori decided we're not gonna play that game anymore and he went he get, he went heavy-handed and he put down the insurgency and then later they arrested Abimael Guzman who was the leader of the Sendero Luminoso and they threw him in jail I think he's still there oh no he just died so he died a very angry man still. I mean, he was, he was cranky and mean and rotten and he would say horrid things whenever you interviewed him. But they, they took him out and then Peru was stabilized by the mid-90s. The only problem with Pujimori is that he wanted to just stay there. He got two, He went through two election cycles, went for a third. On his third election cycle, they decided that he was uh, wanting to stay too long and they, they charged him with corruption and then he's, he's still in jail. His daughter ran for president against Castillo and lost.
0: Yeah, so, I remember that.
1: So, so stability is relative. If you look at Peru in the last five years, they've had six presidents, so it's not very stable. And okay. so,
0: the I was nature of I, you know what I, I guess in, in my def- in my defense, I, you know, and I think that most Americans are like this. When we don't hear about something happening, we assume that it's stable, that everything's fine. So
1: when when Fujimori was president one of the things that he did is he instituted a lot of free market reforms and so Peru just started exploding because it's got so many natural resources right there were plenty of investors coming in to do things that Peru was having uh, this this rebirth uh, of incorporating foreign companies into uh, their economy And they were able to generate so much new revenue that that the place just went through this phenomenal growth phase. The only problem is that their system of government has always been a little unstable in the last five years. You've seen the worst of what happens in Peru. Now, so one of the things that happened, you know, getting back to the photo and getting back to who created the photo, Mr. Lula da Silva, when when he was president, um, there was all sorts of shenanigans going on. Uh, and it wasn't until later that, that you heard about Operation Car Wash, Lava Jato, which, which unearthed all the corruption of the Brazilian government. And in it, what they were doing was companies like Petrobras, their national oil company, and Odebrecht, the construction company that has has construction projects all over the world. If you go to the, the Miami airport and you ride the little trolley system that takes you from the, mm-hmm. the yep, car I'm rental to the main airport, yep. That was that was constructed by Odebrecht. However, when Odebrecht was constructing stuff all over South America, it was jacking up the price of its contracts, and then Mr. Lula was helping getting he was getting some of that money uh, some of that money back. So there were several different presidents in in Brazil that were tied into that, and the corruption extended to every country in South America with the exception of the Guyanas and Uruguay every other country was tainted with Odebrecht making or contracting deals where they were providing kickbacks and they were in turn getting uh, campaign donations so the whole thing blew up and and Odebrecht became a a mess and then eventually uh, they were able to tie not directly Odebrecht to Mr. Lula but another construction company that gave him a seaside resort and they found all kinds of corruption. That's why Mr. Lula ended up getting sentenced to, uh, to jail in a lengthy prison term. Uh, but that was overturned uh, and by the Supreme Court by some Supreme Court justices. and now Lula was able to run for president again and has done so and won uh, by one percentage point. And there's arguments on the bolsonaro side that says that the elections were not fair and there was collusion and then you had Mr you know Mr Musk uh, talking about yep. how yeah maybe Facebook did or maybe maybe Twitter did have something to do with that so now you have the situation that you're seeing in Brazil but again going back to the photo of Sao Paulo remember Lula did this in 1990 long before he was in political office right so he was at right. the time the leader of a of the, the workers party and so he's had a significant influence in the entire region. So when you start looking at everything as a whole, you can get an appreciation for what the impact of some of these dynamics are on the governments in these countries. Mexico uh, is affiliated with Mr. Lula because Mr., Mr. Amlo has always been of the left. He's a populist. He wants to, uh, he was trying to figure out a way to stay in office. Most recently he tried to change the the way that their national electoral institute is configured so that there was more of an ability by his party to influence who were members of that electoral council and they had protests like you saw in Brazil in every right. major city in Mexico. And then Mr. Amlo decided I'll do one better, I'll just bust in a whole bunch of people into Mexico City Create this crowd, and I'll I'll show them and I can create crowds too. So he brought in a bunch of people; they made a big big crowd. But yeah. uh, if you look at his speech in the Zocalo, which is the town square in Mexico City where you go to protests that can hold up to about half a million people, by the time he got done with his speech, about half of them had already gone home. So there's there's all of these type of dynamics taking place, and all of it to influence government, and all of it uh, to culminate. And what's worrisome, and that is, if you want to see some examples of what the end state looks like, look at Cuba, look at Nicaragua, look at Venezuela, and look at Bolivia. None of those countries have a democratic system where you have outside parties changing the government. And their argument is, well, that's because they love us so much. But I don't know about Cuba. You know, I've been there. (laughs) I've been in Guantanamo, so I was so that's not necessarily fair but but Cuba is um, is a fascinating case people I have plenty of friends that have been there uh, yeah. and they describe what Cuba is like and all this stuff about oh you get you get free free medical care yeah, but you go to hospitals where the plumbing doesn't work right. you have to bring in your own medicines you have to bring in your own medical supplies uh, and there may be a doctor there but yep.
0: You know, well, we that, so that the medical que-
1: care.
0: So the yeah. question I have to ask is: is that you know, I'm a fan of history. I I, I love learning about, in particular, how parties and people come to power, the process that yes. they go, the processes that they go through, uh, and, and one in particular was Saddam Hussein, who played it like played the Middle East like a fiddle for a number of years, in that he went through the process of being. Um, working in a lot of different areas of the government without really having much power, but that whole time building alliances and partnerships between yeah. people so that when he did rise to power, all of those people owed him favors. He They owed him, and that's the process that we're seeing not only in Cuba, still happens there, but in South America. And now we're starting to see that really not even be hidden anymore, creeping into American politics. Do you think that what's happened in South America, we're starting to now see creep into elections here in the U.S.? I mean, what just happened in Arizona, taking three weeks to count votes? Is it going to get worse or better? It's going to
1: get worse unless we say we're not going to do that anymore. Because remember, I, I talked to you about all of the institutions of the U.S. government being influenced by leftist thought. And so they're doing the, they've been doing this in Latin America for a long time. Now it's just come to a theater near you. I mean, if you look at Chile, when they had the big crowds in the street, those were organized crowds, not unlike Antifa, like Black Lives Matter. And then you you put in people that can tear things up and make a mess of things. That's not like uh, Antifa. And if you look at the protest signs after the riots in, in Santiago, Chile. Uh, they use the same symbols you know they they use a circle and the 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 star looking thing in the center the satanic symbol (laughs) but they they did all of that and they they use a lot of common symbology so so all of that is is to say that yes there's influence yes a lot of these ideas are hatched in these big groups and you create a doctrine you create believers And that makes it easier for you to then move things in a certain direction because people wonder, well, who's the leader of this organization? Well, if you have a doctrine and if you believe the doctrine and if you've been indoctrinated to believe the doctrine, it's easy to follow. You can you can get the commander's intent and then you go out and execute on that whenever you put people out into the streets. So this is uh, this is obviously something that we need to take a hard look at. But one of the things that they want to destroy is. The church because the church is about one truth and you also want to censor people and you want to have a partnership so basically you want to create a fascistic state you you work with the big corporations the big corporations help you out you help them out and then you 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 quash the people in the middle and the small businesses and you make them be the guys that are still those that provide resources because those are the law-abiding and then you got you got to have a big chunk of people that are at, at that are looking for you to take care of them. And that's what's happening in Peru. You've got a lot of poor people and you keep promising them the moon and you can you can give them a little and they go a long way. And so they'll go out there into the streets and they'll go out there and and block roads and do all the things that they're doing. And then in the meantime, what the world sees is a government that is not, or not responsive to the complaints of the people you get enough people out there you
0: organize enough people out
1: there right. and you can get them to do whatever you want and so that's well, the I, way I, that politics is run in some of these countries
0: well and I, and I see it creeping more and more into our system in that we're seeing the exact same kind of attacks um the government especially the the and i shouldn't say the dnc i should say that both parties have utilized the media, but the DNC has embedded, I mean, they're they're really there here in this country. And we're starting to see the media side with one side of government as opposed to reporting information and news, they're reporting opinion. And we're seeing um, the the nepotism, we're seeing the favoritism, we're seeing all of that no longer hidden. It's in plain sight now. It's easy for people to see.
1: We are moving in that direction. Think about how much money we're spending in Ukraine, how much money President Biden just uh, promised to give the Africans how much money we're going to have to spend with the four million that we know, plus probably somewhere in the vicinity of one and a half to another two million that have come in that are getaways that are coming across the border on a daily basis. And uh, where is where are you going to be able to provide uh, for all these people? By the way, um... do yourself do yourself a favor in your town, go to the emergency room some night and see who's there. Right. I went to I went to the emergency room here and I was fascinated to see uh, in northern Virginia how many people were there. And I would argue that a good chunk of them, probably 90 percent,
0: didn't speak English. Yeah. So. And it's the same way did, in every that's community. A, that's in the medical care. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sergio, we I, I, re- I appreciate you dropping in with us today. I know you had a short um, you had a short period that you could stay with us. Uh, is there anything that you want to say in closing? Uh, what you expect to see next or where we go next? What happens.
1: Well, if you want to avoid what we're seeing in Latin America happen to the United States. We're going to have to get involved. We're going to have to play the game by the new rules and we're going to have to be a lot more vocal and what we need to do is hold people accountable. Now that we have at least one house uh, we would now that we have the house. We need to hold them accountable to make sure that they investigate all these things that are going on. And a lot of stuff is coming to the fore right now. For example, the collusion between the FBI and Twitter before Elon Musk took over. All of those things need to be investigated. So if we're going to maintain our democracy, we need to act on it because you're right. If we go through another election cycle where we've gone through the same dynamics as the last two, uh, this country is not going to survive as we know it today by the way one I other agree. thing i do i do have one parting shot so Go why on. is latin america why is latin america important because if you have leftist governments that means that countries like china countries like russia countries like north korea countries like iran will have a much freer hand at doing things in those regions and that is going to become a national security threat Let me just point out one just one place if you go north of Lima along the coast about 80 kilometers you will find the port of Shanghai not Shanghai Shanghai and the Port of Shanghai is a three billion dollar investment by the Chinese to have the ability to dock ships that are up to 400 meters long how long is an aircraft carrier? It's less than yep. 400 meters. But they can handle a 400 meter long ship. Yeah. That means they can handle any size naval vessel. And if you look at the at Lima or if you look at the coastline of the Pacific coast, that opens up all sorts of new possibilities for trade by the Chinese throughout the entire Pacific to include all of Latin America. And they're also working to create the Trans-Amazonic Highway that connects Lima all the way to the Atlantic coast. So they'll have that network. And then if you look at who the major trading partners are in South America, we've gone from being the number one trading partner to being the number two. Guess who number one is, especially with the eight largest economies in South America? It's all China. 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 and they own venezuelan oil they are up to their eyeballs in debt with the, the with the chinese so the venezuelans may say they own the oil fields but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that those oil fields are really the, the 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 product of the chinese first now just one parting shot so when they did that when they created the agreements on how to trade oil with Venezuela. They did it unconstitutionally. They signed off with it was either Chavez or Maduro for all these loans. So if perchance Venezuela becomes democratic and the new government comes in, they say, hey, we don't know you, Jack. You know, you made the deal with an individual, not with the state, because in the Constitution that Chavez wrote, you cannot sell national products into perpetuity which they did. And so the Chinese have always been a little squirrely about having Venezuela revert back to somebody else who can say, ah, we don't owe you anything, China. And so they will lose that grip they have on Venezuelan oil. So you can see the influence in the region. It's a, it's a complicated situation, but if we do not look at it as a national security risk, then we're being short-sighted. So that's, that's my party. My party. Perfect. Well,
0: Sergio, as always, thanks for joining us. Thanks for your insights. We, uh, we really look forward to, to hearing what you have to say. We'll, we'll have you back again soon. We know that things are, are getting ready to heat up in, in South America. We've got a couple things happening here, so we want to play those out and then get you back the next time. Uh, this is the, the Kramer Says Podcast. My name is Kramer, and we will be back tomorrow or as soon as we can. See you then. Bye-bye. Get more at KramerSays.com. Kramer, S E Z dot zcom